All right, take your Bible and open to John, John chapter 20. Verse 24 down to verse 29. John chapter 20, starting at verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples, therefore, were saying to him, We have, all, we have seen the Lord. And he said to them, Unless I shall see in his hands the imprints of the nails and put my fingers into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days again, his disciples were inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, Reach here your finger and see my hands. Reach here your hand and put it into my side. And be not unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God, and Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we're so thankful for uh, an opportunity to open your word. And we're thankful for uh, this great encouraging word here towards the end of the, uh, the gospel of John. And we pray that you would help us to learn uh, what I believe that you have left for us to uh, see and to uh, uh, challenge us uh, with in this uh, interaction between Jesus and Thomas. Uh, guide our time, uh, open our hearts, convict us, and, and change us where it is appropriate. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We are here, obviously, in the book of John. We're in the 20th chapter, very close to the end of, the, uh, of our study in this wonderful book. And this section that we're dealing with here concerning uh, Thomas, uh, with this section here concerning Thomas and his interaction with uh, Jesus, this is really the conclusion of John's uh, account of Jesus' death and resurrection. This is the final part of that story. And it's a fascinating portion of Scripture. It's a challenging uh, portion of Scripture before us. And, and I'm just going to cut right to the chase. I'm going to get to the issue and not waste a whole lot of time what I think the issue here is in this text. A lot of times, uh, uh, Thomas uh, gets the nickname Doubting Thomas, right? And because of his struggle with unbelief. But I, but I personally, I was telling elders this morning, I, per, I personally think the main issue with Thomas is not his doubting. The main issue with Thomas is his missing. It's not so much doubting Thomas, but it's really missing Thomas. He wasn't there. Uh, when, when Christ uh, revealed himself to the disciples the first time, uh, the fact is he was AWOL. Now, without question, he, he struggled with doubt, but the main issue with Thomas, for whatever reason, is he chose not to be a part of the fellowship. Therefore, he struggled, and unnecessarily. He, he was discouraged for a week longer than the other disciples because Thomas was absent the first time that Jesus appeared to his disciples after his resurrection. And as a consequence, he missed the blessing that Christ had for his people, and that blessing was his very presence. Now, I'll be honest with you, one of the great discouragements that I have as a pastor is when people are not present in the fellowship for whatever reason. For whatever reason, they choose to neglect, forsake the assembly. And even though this congregation is growing and, and it's becoming a little more unmanageable, a little more difficult to try to keep track of, uh, of these kind of issues, I guarantee you without fail, every single Sunday uh, on my way home, I drive and I think to myself, I did not see so-and-so. I did not see so-and-so. And I'm thinking to myself, where were they? 
Why, why were they not in the fellowship? And I wonder, are they okay? Is everything okay with them? And somebody asked the question, well, what's the big deal if somebody's missing? Well, the answer I would give to that question is because we're all part of a family. And it concerns me when part of our family is missing. It, it seems crazy to me that we'd sit down at the dinner table for uh, or lunch or whatever with your, your family and a couple of kids are missing and you go, well, I don't know where they're at, but so what, let's just eat. Right? We, we don't do that. I don't know why we do that in the body of Christ. They're not here. We're concerned for our family when our family is absent. We're concerned for you when you're absent. Somebody else asked the question, do you think people should be present every single time the fellowship meets Sunday morning and Sunday evening? And my answer to that question is without hesitation, yes. And the follow-up question obviously has to be something along the lines of, well, what's the big deal if I miss church every once in a while? Aren't you being legalistic? And the answer to that question is unquestionably Absolutely no. Why is that? Because I'm not the one who wrote this. I'm not the one who inspired the, the writer of the book of Hebrews to pen, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembly, not neglecting, not deserting or abandoning our own assembly together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. I did not write that. I did not cause that to be inscripturated. I did not cause that to be written down in the Word of God. So I believe as a faithful follower of Christ, you should not be absent from the fellowship, Sunday morning or Sunday evening, without an exceptionally good reason. You should be committed to the fellowship as a pattern of practice in your life, unless you're very sick, unless you're physically unable to attend, or some other major issue uh, presents your physical presence. I think... You should be personally committed to never miss the Lord's Supper when it's, when it's uh, uh, celebrated here in our fellowship. And I believe that you should never pass up a personal opportunity to receive the means of God's grace that you could receive by being in the fellowship and sitting under the proclamation of the Word of God if you care for your soul. If you care for your soul. Because the very sermon that you needlessly missed may have contained precious words that your soul desperately needed to hear Precious words that you personally and desperately needed to hear for the care of your own soul. And if you care for your soul and you care for the soul of others in the fellowship, you should be in that fellowship. Again, as a regular pattern of practice. Because we all have a corporate responsibility to each other. Uh, it, it's true we're saved individually, but we have a corporate responsibility to each other. It is not just me and Jesus. It's a Western mindset we need to jettison. The church is the body of Christ, right? The church is the body of Christ. It's made up of many different members that compromise one body, uh, or that comprise one, one body. Romans chapter 12, verse 4 and 5. As, as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, individually members of one another. Church is the body of Christ. The church is the family of God. 2 Corinthians 6, 18. I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Ephesians 2, 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. We're, we're a family. So again, the church is not just you and Jesus. It's about all of us. It's about a family. It's about a body. It's about all of us coming together and all of us honoring and serving Christ together and all of us considering how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds and all of us not forsaking our own assembly as the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. It is absolutely impossible 
for you or I or anybody else to carry out the one another's, it's absolutely impossible for us to consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds if you are not part of the fellowship. It's impossible. It's an utter impossibility if you're not present. And honestly, I was telling the men this this morning, I cannot count uh, the number of times over the years that we have come to a particular portion of Scripture in our study of the Word of God together, uh, and, and the Word has been explained, proclaimed, explained, and I thought to myself afterward, I just can't tell you how many times I thought to myself, well, you know what, if so-and-so would have been there this morning, they would have been so encouraged by that text of Scripture because that's the exact issue they struggle with. They would have been so encouraged. They'd have been so blessed by the scripture, by the explanation. Because again, that, dish, that text dealt with the exact issue that they're struggling with, but sadly they weren't there. They, they missed the blessing of being uh, uh, under the word of God and hearing the word of God in their life. And for some reason, whatever it was, they chose not to be in the fellowship that morning. So they missed the opportunity to meet with Christ through his word in the fellowship. Now, in all fairness to Thomas, here in the text, the text doesn't say why Thomas wasn't there. The text doesn't tell us why he was absent. So it's very possible that Thomas could have had some kind of reasonable explanation. But, considering the crisis in the lives of these 11 men, these other 10 men and him that were, they were going through in the moment with the death of Christ, and with the death of Christ, their utter hopelessness and helplessness, not understanding, not believing in the resurrection, it's improbable, at least to me, it's improbable to think they had really good reason for not being present. It's improbable that he had really good reason for not being with the brethren. It's far, far more likely, I think, that he was not there because he was discouraged. He was sad of heart. Therefore, he made the decision not to come. Now, again, over the years that I've pastored this fellowship, and they're starting to amass a large number, I've noticed a pattern of people when they're struggling with some kind of significant issue in their life, they often disappear. When people have some kind of issue in their life, they, they disappear. They become inconsistent in their attendance in the fellowship. They remove themselves uh, from the fellowship, sometimes altogether. And I've seen that pattern repeatedly happen over and over again. And again, I've told you that their absence to me, when I start seeing people missing, their absence to me is always an indicator that they're struggling with some kind of issue. And instead of running to the fellowship, they run away from the fellowship. Instead of running to the fellowship where they could find encouragement and help in the body of Christ, because we are, uh, second, or Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, we are to be bearing one another's burdens. Uh, many people who just struggle uh, in, in the present with certain issues, they remove themselves from the fellowships and they don't, they don't show up. And sometimes they disappear altogether. And I know they're struggling. They disappear and they, they're gone. You never see them again. It's really sad. I mean, really sad. Now, obviously, here in the context of the story, John, uh, in, the, in the story here in John, Thomas is struggling. He's dealing with a, a great amount of discouragement because Christ has died. And again, at the moment, he has no hope of the resurrection. And like I've told you before, you either believe the word of God or you what? Struggle. That's it. Life's pretty simple. We complicate it. You either believe the word of God, what God says, or you struggle. Those are your options in life. And Thomas, like others, like the other men, didn't believe that Jesus, what Jesus said, that he said he was going to go and he's going to suffer, he's going to die, but he's going to defeat death, right? He'd rise on the third day. Jesus told them that numerous times, but they didn't believe. They didn't listen. So again, by being present or by being absent the previous week, whatever the issue was with Thomas, when Jesus did show up the first time with his disciples, Thomas wasn't there. 
He wasn't there, and he was kept, therefore, in suspense and unbelief and sadness for an entire week longer, while the other men who were with him that he'd lived with for the last three years or so, they were rejoicing because they'd actually seen the risen Lord. And more than likely, Thomas was absent when he could have been present, guilty of forsaking the assembly. Therefore, again, because of his choice, sadly missing out on Christ's intended blessing for his disciples, Thomas is shut out in the cold, as it were, because of unbelief. The other disciples were warmed and filled because they'd seen the risen Christ, the risen Savior. Again, just like all people who choose to remove themselves from the fellowship for whatever reason or are not a regular part of it, they miss out on the blessings of Christ for his people. Listen to me. Listen to Christ, the one who said this. Matthew 18, 20. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, I'm in their midst. Now the problem is, most of the people who needed to hear what I just said, they're not here. <laughs> so they didn't get to hear it, right? They're, they're not here. But that's where you come in, right? They weren't part of the fellowship this morning, but that's where you come in. I, I, I cannot personally, nor can the el other elders, uh, deal with 200 people all at once. But I'm sure that each and every one of us in the room who are here this morning, we know somebody else, another dear brother or sister in the fellowship, who uh, falls into the category of what I've just described, who are often AWOL, absent, not regular uh, attenders for whatever reason. Therefore, you have a responsibility because of your love for Christ, because of your love for them, to reach out to our dear, inconsistent brothers and sisters and encourage them not to forsake the assembly. Morning and evening. If you're not here in the evening, you miss 50% of the teaching that comes from the pulpit concerning the Word of God. Somebody asked, well, is there any kind of scriptural mandate to be in the fellowship both morning and evening? All I can tell you is what I read, what the text of Scripture describes, that Christ rose from the dead on Sunday morning, and that's when he first met his first followers, right? He met the women there, Mary Magdalene and the other ladies. And what did they do? They had a worship service, right? They worshiped him. That evening, the same day, the first day of the week, uh, on Sunday, once again, he met, Christ met with his followers, and they were there in the room, upper, upper room. Christ came to them, and they worshiped, and then Jesus preached. First time uh, Thomas is absent, but here we are in the context of the story we're going to look at this morning. Uh, we're a week later, and it's the first day of the week, and again, Jesus is meeting with his uh, followers. I don't know, it might just be an accident, maybe it's a coincidence, or maybe Jesus is actually setting a pattern of practice for the New Testament believer as the Lord comes and establishes when he meets with those who follow him uh, on the first day of the week. We should encourage each other to be a part of the fellowship always because when you're not, you miss stuff, right? You miss stuff. Now, in order to get back in the flow of the text, go back up to verse 18, and let me just kind of read through a little bit. John 20, verse 18. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I've seen the Lord. And then he said these things to her, verse 19. Therefore, when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut or locked, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. 
Now, as I mentioned to you, the Lord's first interaction with his disciples here after the resurrection, his first interaction with them is a message of peace. It's a common greeting, no doubt, I got that. But I think in the context, the message is greater than just, hi, how are you? I think the message of peace is really assuring them on one level of his continuing graciousness towards them, even though they have forsaken him. And not only that, but it's the, the reality that peace with God is going to be really the foundational ministry that he's going to call his followers to proclaim to the world. And we spoke about that last time. Spoke about the need for all men to have peace with God, both objective and subjective peace, the peace with God, the peace of God. And both are one, W-O-N, both are one for men through the shedding of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God is one through Christ's substitutionary death, burial, and resurrection, verse 20. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side, and the disciples therefore rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Verse 21, Jesus therefore again said to them, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. Now I told you verse 21, I really think is a preview of the Great Commission. That's coming later. That's Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. But this is a preview. The mission that the Father is going to send his representatives into the world, right? The same mission that the Father sent the Son into the world is the same mission that Christ is going to send his followers into the world to accomplish. And it really is the offer of God's peace. Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, I also send you. So again, out of the Father's love for a rebellious world like the one we live in, he sent his Son. The Father sent his Son into this world, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ, out of his love for the Father, out of his love for this rebellious world, he came. He came to be mankind's substitute. He came to stand in man's place. Christ came to bring an end to the hostility between a holy God and sinful man. The wages of sin is death. Somebody has to pay that penalty. And Jesus Christ is the only one who can pay that penalty. And Jesus Christ paid that penalty for those who repent and place their faith upon him. And as I told you also, Jesus Christ came into this world for one express purpose. He didn't come to change society. He didn't come to, to redeem the culture. He, he didn't come to make things financially better. He came to seek and save the lost. We came to seek and save the lost. And he sends us out as his representatives into this world as his ambassadors, again, representing him with that same purpose, to seek and save the lost. And as I've told you, we make this thing far too complicated. We have one message. Here's the message that we are to deliver to the world. God is willing to forgive your sin through Christ. That's the message. I don't have to prove God. All men know that God exists. I don't have to prove the Bible is true because the Bible is true. It's the word of God. All men suppress the truth and unrighteousness. We have one message. God is willing to forgive your sin through Christ. Next statement, are you interested? If not, have a great day. Because I'm not in charge of bringing people up from the dead. I'm in charge of delivering the message. I'm in charge of being a faithful ambassador of the person of Christ from a different kingdom and a different realm. Here's what the king says to this realm. God is offering you peace. Are you interested? That's it. One message. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us, is a friend of sinners. He came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Eternal life, forgiveness of sin is available through him, through that one message. God is willing to forgive your sin through Christ. But in order to carry out that task, these men are going to need divine enablement. That's verse 27. 
When he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, I told you this is really, I think, a symbolic prophetic act. It's concerning what's going to happen in the fullness on the day of Pentecost, some 40, uh, 49 days later in Acts chapter 2. This is not Pentecost. This is a symbolic prophetic act concerning what's coming. This is not the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost in his fullness. Now, many commentators would say this is not even a temporary bestowing of the Holy Spirit upon these disciples until Pentecost comes. Uh, that's what a lot of men would, take, would teach. Because they would say, well, this is not even a temporary pouring out, because if it were true, then it's not very, the results aren't very good. I mean, these guys didn't, uh, they're kind of disappointing. I mean, they, they didn't, weren't dramatically transformed. They weren't changed. Uh, again, that doesn't happen until later in the day of Pentecost. I mean, they don't even go out and preach the gospel. If you look very carefully, the next thing these guys go out and do in the gospel of John is what? They go fishing. Not exactly spiritual, right? So again, I told you, I think this is really a symbolic gesture uh, of what Christ is going to, what God is going to do here in a few days. But also, I think it's a symbolic gesture uh, of, uh, of the picture of life that is needed. Just, God, just as God breathed life when he created Adam, he breathed life into him, made him a living being. Just as in the book of Ezekiel, the 37th chapter, you had that valley of dry bones, right? God tells the prophet to, to, to breathe the word of life into them so these corpses, these bones might come to life. That's what men need. They need supernatural life. They need supernatural power. Men need the supernatural breath of God to be raised from the dead spiritually. So to carry out the mandate that God gives to those who follow him, those who represent him. They need to tell it, those who tell it, they need power. And those who receive it, they need to hear it. Those who need to hear it, they need life. Right? They need power in life. Again, the Holy Spirit's not immediately bestowed upon these guys here in the, in the fullness uh, as a result of what Jesus did. It's a picture of what men need. Now again, most people see this just as a symbolic gesture, just as a, uh, what's going to happen in the, in the near future in the day of Pentecost. And then on the day of Pentecost, the men are going to be supernaturally empowered and able by the Holy Spirit to declare the message boldly without compromise. Take the message. Again, they need, they need power. They, they need life given to those who hear the message. Again, the message is God is willing to forgive your sin. Now, there are, on the other side, there are those who would say, well, no, I really do think this uh, act here where he, he said, peace be with you, and then he said this, he breathed out on them uh, and, and said, receive the Holy Spirit. There are some who would argue this is a temporary imparting uh, of the Holy Spirit to strengthen and encourage these uh, men for the next 49 days until the day of Pentecost and, and so that these men would remember the teaching of Christ. These men would be encouraged and, and uh, uh, be relieved of the guilt of, of their failures concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Acts chapter 1 uh, verse uh, 7. Again, it's before Pentecost. It's at the ascension uh, of Christ. After the disciples have asked the Lord if it was time for him to restore the kingdom, Acts chapter 1, verse 7, he said to them, it is not for you to know the uh, time or epochs which the Father has fixed on by his own authority, verse 8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, even the remotest part of the earth. And after these things, uh, he was lifted up while they were looking on and the cloud received him out of their sight. Just a bit further in the same chapter, chapter 1, verse 14, now you find all the disciples gathered together in the upper room where they're staying. Uh, chapter 1, verse 14 of Acts says, All these with one mind were continued devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brethren. So these guys are all now in the upper room. Now they're awaiting the promise of the Holy Spirit to come. So they have a unity. They have a ferventness in prayer. 
again, some would say, well, this is the, what he just did. He gave them this, uh, imparted the Holy Spirit to them in part to keep them together, uh, to keep them focused. I, I, I don't know. You, you, you can choose. All right. I do know when Acts chapter 2 comes, these men are supernaturally empowered. They're sent out under the full power of the person of the Holy Spirit to carry out the, the, the proclamation of the gospel that, again, God is willing to forgive your sin through Christ. And then he says, look, that's the message. You proclaim forgiveness or you proclaim retention. What does that mean? Your retention of sin, forgiveness of sin through Christ, retention of sin for those who reject Christ. The fact that those who refuse to repent and place their faith in the person of Jesus Christ, they're still unforgiven. They're still guilty before God based on the authority of the word of God. That's verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. So again, mere men don't have the ability to forgive sin or retain sin of the people like the Roman Catholic Church falsely teaches. Only God forgives sin. And the scriptures present sin as an affront uh, to God, which brings with it judgment. And again, based on the authority of the Word of God, we can confidently, as followers of Christ, we can confidently declare to men that their sins can be freely forgiven in Christ, by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person of Jesus Christ alone. Likewise, we can confidently, with authority, uh, tell them that those who reject the saving message of the gospel, uh, those who deny the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, shall perish in hell. They're going to perish in hell unless they repent. And we say that with confidence and authority because authority comes from Christ, who's the head of the church, and that's what's spoken through his word. And as believers, we act, uh, we represent, we speak according to his word. And we know that God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ both stand with us behind the authority of the proclamation of his truth. Verse 24, But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples, therefore, were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. And he said to them, Unless I shall see his hands uh, in his uh, hands, the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus. The word means twin. So he must have had a twin brother someplace. It doesn't, it doesn't appear in the, in the text of the scripture. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So again, Thomas is not with the other disciples uh, when uh, he first shows up, when Jesus first shows up. Now, we don't know a whole lot about Thomas. Uh, we, he doesn't appear to be one of the more prominent disciples. The synoptics only mention him in the list of the other, uh, other men, the other 11. And again, the details that we really do know about him come from John's gospel. It, it seems by personality, uh, Thomas was an eternal pessimist. But he was also somebody who was extremely loyal. Remember back in John chapter 11, uh, when, when Thomas reacted to the news that Jesus was going back to the vicinity of Jerusalem, uh, the Lord is going to go back to Bethany and deal with Lazarus who had uh, died. Uh, again, he's going back within reach of the Jewish uh, religious leaders who just tried to kill him in uh, 11, John 11, verse 8. Thomas exclaimed, uh, verse 15 of that chapter, let us go that we may die with him. So again, T Thomas is a pessimist, but, but, but he's loyal. He has great courage. He thought the situation of Jesus going back was a great risk to him. He thought the situation was towards Jerusalem, towards Bethany. There was, a, was hopeless, but nonetheless, he's willing to go. He's willing to lay down his life for the Lord. His love, Thomas's love for the Lord being so strong, he would per prefer to have died with him rather than to be separated from him. And when Jesus begins what's known as that uh, farewell discourse there in the upper room uh, by saying that he's going to go to his father's house, uh, where there are many dwelling places, remember that? Uh, he's going to go prepare a place for them. 
Uh, and if he leaves them, he's going to leave them, but he's going to come back and going to receive them, take them to where he's at, uh, that the disciples knew where, where he was going. And, and Thomas pops up and prominently, uh, prompt, uh, promptly contradicts the Lord and complains of John 14, 5, Lord, uh, we do not know where you're going. We don't know the way. How do we know the way? We don't know where you're going, right? So again, by personality, he seems to be a little bit pessimistic, but fatalistic, I don't know, but he's loyal. He's loyal. He's courage. He has a great love for Christ. Everything for him, though, seems to be on the negative side. We don't know where you're going. So when Jesus dies, all hope dies with Thomas. Thomas must have been crushed when the Lord died. His heart irreparably, irreparably broken. Perhaps feeling now at the moment that it's better for him to be alone than to be in with other people. He didn't even want to be with people that he'd been walking with, living with over the last few years. Friends who, like he, loved Christ. So perhaps he's off somewhere feeling sorry for himself, fearful, uncertain. And because he's absent, he, miss, he's absent, he misses the Lord's appearance. Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. Now again, in all fairness to Thomas, we don't know why he wasn't there. We don't know the exact reason for why he wasn't present. Maybe he was on a long business trip. Maybe he had a legitimate reason he was detained, just couldn't get back. We don't know. But it is truthful to say that by his absence, he missed a tremendous blessing. It's truthful to say by Thomas's absence, he missed a tremendous blessing. And I think his absence reminds all of us in the room that it's unwise ever to be absent from the assembly of God's people without good cause. It's unwise ever to be absent from the assembly of God's people without good cause. Because I've told you numerous times over the, year when, over the years, when you're not here, you what? You miss stuff. <laughs> That's just reality. You miss stuff when you're not here. Verse 25, the other disciples said, who were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas refused to believe. Thomas refused to believe in part because I think he's a realist, right? Dead men tend to stay dead. He said to them, unless I shall see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. So it's with those words right there, I will not believe that Thomas has been known throughout history as doubting Thomas. Now, I, I think that's a little unfair to our brother here because I don't really think we should disparage him alone and single him out for doubting because all the other disciples, likewise, did not believe Christ's resurrection from the dead, right? At some point, they all doubted. And I believe the Bible teaches that believers can have genuine times of sincere doubt, even the strongest believer. I'm not quite sure where it came into the Christian thinking uh, that we believe that sometimes as true Christians, we can never doubt anything the Bible says. We can never have any kind of doubts concerning the person of Jesus Christ. I don't see that in the text of Scripture. I think you can look at the Psalms. You can look at the Psalms and see that the psalmists are often expressing at times great confidence in God. And then the very next verse, the kind of something comes over them and then they kind of express words that demonstrate their faith is beginning to waver. And I think in the Christian world, we, we need to be very careful not to confuse doubt with unbelief. We need to be careful not to confuse doubt with unbelief. Unbelief rejects the Bible in total. 
Unbelief rejects the Bible in total, its teachings in total, its teaching concerning the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Unbelief refuses to accept the fact that Jesus is God come in the flesh. Unbelief refuses to accept the fact that Jesus is both God and man in one person. Unbelief refuses to accept the fact that Jesus is the only Savior of the world. Unbelief refuses to accept the fact that Jesus died a substitutionary death for all who would believe upon him and that he was raised victoriously from the dead, literally and physically, on the third day, just like he said, therefore providing proof that God has justified and forgiven the sins of all those who have placed their faith in him. And unbelief is, of course, eternally deadly. Doubt, on the other hand, is something that occurs in the life of the believer. And almost every instance or, uh, in, in the New Testament, every reference to the New Testament regarding doubt deals with believers. Matthew 14, 31. Peter walks on water. Peter walks on water and we give him a hard time. I mean, how dumb are we? Right? Who are you getting out of the boat, right? He walks on water. And he starts to sink. Matthew 14, 31, and immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? His disciples, he causes, Jesus causes the fig tree to wither. Matthew 21, verse 21, Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you shall not only do what is done to the fig tree, but even say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and it shall happen. When the followers of Christ saw him after the resurrection, even at the Great Commission, right? Matthew 28, verse 17, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful. Two disciples on the road to Emmaus, Luke 24, verse 34, or 38, he said to them, uh, Jesus said to them, why are you troubled? Why are you so doubtful? Or why do doubts arise in your heart? James 1 and 6, let him who asks with faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven, tossed by the wind. Doubting occurs in the life of the believer. Even in the greatest of believers, not just the weak. Elijah, he's at the peak of his ministry. He's he just had a great success over the false prophets of Baal. And, and then he grows weak and he doubts. There are times when we all struggle with doubt. There's an ongoing tension in all of our lives between times of assurance and times of doubt for all of us. And again, even for the most mature believer. In Matthew chapter 11 uh, we see one who Jesus called the greatest man who'd ever lived. His name is John the Baptist. And even John the Baptist entered into a time of doubt. He finds himself locked in prison and he doubts. So put a little mark there because we're going to come back to John. But go back to Matthew. Go to Matthew 11. Verse 2. Now when John in prison heard the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples, verse 3, and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? John, John the Baptist believed that Jesus was the Christ. He believed that Jesus was the expected one, the Messiah, the coming one. However, at this moment, John's life is not going exactly the way he planned it. And he's already pointed out the fact that Jesus is the Christ. He baptized him. He affirmed the fact that he believed in him, but yet he doubts. 
Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Now, John, John the Baptist here, by his personality, by way of conviction, throughout his entire life, he's kind of a fiery guy, right? Very bold preacher, never soft on confronting anybody or confronting sin. Never soft on truth. He never softened the truth for anyone. He's just a fiery guy. He had a fire for God, a, God, a fire for God's holiness. He repeatedly spoke to people directly, fearlessly, without any concerns even for his own safety, right? He publicly and directly to his face confronted and rebuked Herod for his wickedness for stealing his wife's brother and living with her as his wife in adultery. But now John's in prison. He's discouraged. He's doubting. He must have been, at least in his mind, asking, why is my life like this? Where's Jesus? Why, why hasn't he come to rescue me? So I think it's common for all of us to have times of doubt, especially when we go through difficult circumstances. You lose your job. You suffer, suffer the death of a, of a family member or a close friend. You have some major kind of health issue. In times of personal struggle, it's easy for us to doubt and to have questions. If God loves me, then why are things going in my life like they are? If God loves me, then why doesn't he free me from my circumstances? And the problem is when we set our sight on our circumstances, we take our eyes off of whom? God, right? When we, when we set our sight on our circumstances, we take our focus off of God. And we stop, stop trusting the person of God and we stop trusting his word. And at that very moment, when we take our eyes off God and we look at our circumstances and situations, it's very easy for the devil to come along and start to say things to us that are not true about the nature and character of God. And then allow us to tempt our hearts or tempt us to allow our hearts to question God and his goodness towards us. Difficult circumstances, negative circumstances, personal tragedy all cause us to question or doubt God. Are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? So for the Christian, it's not necessarily sinful to doubt. It's not uncommon. I think it's part of the normal ebb and flow of life. It's part of the walk. Times of difficulty, times of struggle, times of personal calamity, personal weakness. All those things can cause us to doubt. I think confusion and misunderstanding about the truth uh, of the Word of God can cause us to doubt. We don't understand what the text of Scripture is saying. We think it says something completely different than what it says. And that misunderstanding or confusion over the truth causes us to doubt. I, I think unconfessed sin in a believer's life can greatly hinder a person's fellowship with Christ. And unconfessed sin can cause someone to doubt. Disobedience, obviously, to the clear commands of Christ assaults our assurance and can cause us to doubt. Sometimes the bent of our personalities can cause us to doubt. We've talked about that a lot, right? You've got to stop listening to yourself. You've got to start what? Speaking to yourself the truth. Bent of personality can cause us to doubt. And the antidote or the cure to doubt is to look at Jesus Christ. Look at Jesus Christ, trust him, believe what he says, believe in his word or what? We don't believe the Word of God. We have two options on the table. We either believe the Word of God or we what? Struggle. Boy, if there's a third option, you come tell me because I don't know what it is. You either believe the Word of God or you struggle. John the Baptist doubted. 
He asked, are you the expected one or should we look for someone else? Now listen to the wonderful words of the Savior. Listen to the wonderful words of Jesus. Because again, the cure, the antidote to doubt is to seek Christ, to look at Him. Seek His person. Look at Him. Look who He is. Look what He has done. Look what He is doing. Listen to His words. Are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? Next verse, verse 4. Jesus answered and said to them, Go tell John this, right? Go report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. So Christ says to John, and I think to us, just look, my friend. Look how much I care for the people, my people. Look how much I care for their situation, their circumstances of life. Look at my actions. Look at my interactions. That proves I'm the expected one. Not only does it prove that I'm the expected one, but it proves that I care. It proves that I am personally involved in the struggles, the affairs, the lives of my people. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. So again, in our hour of deepest despair, Christ is the only one who has the power and the ability to deal with our doubts, our discouragement, and our problems. He is the only one that can turn our mourning, right, into joy. Therefore, the last words back to John from this verse are just tremendous. Verse 6. And blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. Blessings come to those who trust Christ and trust Christ alone. So in essence, I think Christ is saying, look, don't allow the circumstances of your life to cause you to doubt the reality of who I am and my goodness. Don't allow wrong thinking or prejudicial thinking to influence you to doubt me. Don't doubt. Because if you doubt, if you, doubt you won't be blessed. If you trust me, if you understand who I am, if you place your life completely in my hands, you'll be happy both in this life and the life to come. So again, for the Christian, to doubt is not sinful, it is unnecessary, and to doubt leads us to a lack of joy, our joy being robbed. So for the Christian, to doubt is not sinful, but for the Christian not to be present is harmful. Because when you're not here, you miss stuff. When you're not in the presence of the assembly of the redeemed, you miss Christ when Christ comes and meets his people in an interaction uh, uh, with them through his word. Go back to John. John 20, verse 25. The other disciples therefore were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I shall see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now some have come along and said, uh, Thomas's unbelief is very sad and very sinful. Now I personally don't think we should go that far. I don't think you go that far with our dear brother. I think that's a bit unfair to him. I think there are Christians who have honest doubts, but they hate their doubts. And their doubts at times make them actually miserable. They want to believe, but, but they're plagued by honest questions. They, they can't close their minds to the doubts. They, they can't step forward in faith. 
They need some kind of credible answer to clear up their doubt. And again, I do think they're genuine Christians who at times doubt, again, based on their personality. We have got to stop listening to ourselves, and we have to speak to ourselves the truth of the Word of God. I also think sometimes people doubt because they might fall into the same category that I think Thomas actually fell in. Sometimes people doubt because of personal failings towards Christ, personal failure towards Christ. Again, Thomas was one of the group that had forsaken Christ and fled at his arrest, correct? Previously, with all, along the rest, had boasted that they would die for Christ, right? Uh, and, but, but he failed. I'll go with you back to, to Jerusalem. We'll go die with you, right? He, he made that boast, but he failed him. And again, I think, coupled with the fact that most men who die tend to stay dead, coupled with the despair, the discouragement, the depression even over the circumstances that he's going through, the guilt of his own personal failure towards the person of Christ, he doubted. And, like the other disciples, he failed to listen to Christ when Christ repeatedly said that he was going to Jerusalem, he was going to be killed, but then he'd be raised on the third day. Again, because he didn't listen to the word of God, he what? He struggled. Now, the common idea, you know this, the common idea of the Messiah in this day was that he was going to be a, a conquering, reigning king, not a suffering and dying one. So when Jesus dies, they don't get it. They don't understand what's going on. And again, when Jesus dies, all hope dies. Mary comes back and she reports, you know, the tomb's empty. Still don't believe. Still don't believe they still don't understand. Again, doubting, I do not believe, is the major issue with Thomas. Not being present is the major issue with Thomas. And again, I think it's just vital to understand that when we are struggling, when we remove ourselves from the fellowship, when we go into personal isolation, when we're doubting and discouraged and depressed, overwhelmed, whatever, overwhelmed by whatever the issue is in our life, when we remove ourselves from the fellowship, all the discouragement and doubt and trouble you're going through is not going to go away. It just increases. Because now you're what? Alone. Now you're alone. And again, while faith is personal, our faith is personal, we're not live, we don't live life in, the Christian, in Christianity in isolation. Saved individually, but we're saved into the body of Christ. There's a corporate aspect of our salvation that we too far often forget and ignore here in the West. I mean, just think about this. Your right hand does not function properly unless it's vitally connected to the rest of your body. If I have a right hand and it's like 12 feet away from me, that might be a hand, but that's not a helpful hand to me because it's not vitally connected. That's the body of Christ. Same thing's true on a spiritual level, right? You can't, you can't conquer your doubts. You can't live the victorious Christian life that I really think God would desire for you to live in the body of Christ if you're off by yourself. It doesn't work. That's why you need to be in the fellowship always. You need to gather regularly with the redeemed people, the church of God, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to be a part of the worship, the teaching, the fellowship, the prayer. You need to be sitting under the preached word. I like Bible studies, but Bible studies is not sitting under the preached word. And when you choose to remove yourself from the fellowship, you remove yourself from the blessing that Christ intended to bring to his people that day when everybody else showed up. When you remove yourself from the fellowship, you remove yourself from the strengthening power and strengthening encouragement of the ministry of the Word of God through uh, the Word in, in the fellowship. You, you remove yourself from that fellowship, from that strengthening power and encouragement. 
When you choose to remove yourself from the fellowship, you're saying, listen, this sounds harsh, but it's true. When you choose to remove yourself from the fellowship, you're saying you know better and you are wiser than God who said you are not to be forsaking the assembly. As is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day draw near. You need to be here in obedience to the Word of God. You need to be here in obedience to the Word of God. You need to be here for others in the room. Because your presence is a blessing to them. It's an encouragement to them. As you interact with them, as you encourage them, as you challenge them, as you cause them to think about how can we love one another. How can we help you in the midst of your struggles? How can we be an encouragement? Because again, life in the fellowship isn't just about you. You have responsibility to others. You have responsibility to others. I have responsibility to others. And I think it's really different in person than it is on the live stream or by way of recording. And I'm very thankful. I honestly am very thankful for the, for the live streaming ability. It's, it's been a tremendous blessing to the, to the church because there are, very, there are some people that have really legitimate uh, physical issues that present, prevent them from, from coming. And I know that there are many people who desire to be here physically, but they just can't. But they're faithful with us each and every week on the live stream. So I'm thankful that we have that, uh, that technology that allows us to be together. But I think if you can be here physically, I think that's the best. Don't just say, well, I'm not coming this morning for whatever reason. I'll just watch it later in the day. Well, you know as well as I do, later in the day never what? Happens. Because we always get, all get busy in life. You should be here physically present. And when I said there are many people who desire to be here physically, but they can't, you don't know who they are, then you should go find out who they are. Because we're fellowship, we're body, we're family. We should know who our brothers and sisters are who are struggling physically and can't be here, but would like to be here. Now, the Lord Jesus, as I look at the text, the Lord Jesus didn't manifest himself to Thomas when Thomas was off by himself being discouraged, doubting, and brooding. The Lord revealed himself to Thomas when Thomas was in the fellowship with the believers. Verse 26. After eight days, and by the Jewish way of counting, this would have been the following Sunday. Again, his disciples were inside, and Thomas was with them, and Jesus came, and the doors having been shut. Again, the doors are locked, but that doesn't prevent or deter Jesus from showing them. He stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. And he is going to immediately, out of his tremendous sympathy and compassion and love, he's going to single out Thomas. Verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand Put it into my side and be not unbelieving, but believing. I mean, the grace, the mercy, the compassion of Christ towards Thomas in his hour of struggle is great. The Lord kindly meets Thomas in his point of weakness, point of doubt. Jesus, he's God in the flesh, right? He, he, he knows Thomas's heart. He, he knows what Thomas said the week previous, even though Thomas uh, wasn't there, or, or what, what Thomas had just said previously, even before he shows up. He knows everything. And again, Jesus doesn't rebuke him because I think Jesus genuinely knew that Thomas's doubt was in part because he had an immense love for the person of Christ. And in his extreme heartache, his extreme personal discouragement, he chose to unwisely not be there. And again, I think it's entirely significant. It's the marks on his body that Jesus draws his attention to. The marks on Christ's physical body there that are an eternal 
memorial to the peace that he has won because of his atoning sacrifice. That's what Christ draws Thomas's attention to. It's the sight of the Savior's wounds. It's the sight of the Savior's wounds that's going to cause calm Thomas's doubts and overcome his sorrow. They're going to cause him, the wounds are going to cause Thomas to bow before the Lord and worship him. And again, it's the marks on the body of Christ that the Lord Jesus Christ draws our attention to. They are emblems of his victory over death, over sin, death, the devil. It's his wounds that allow us to believe that he is the victor over all of life, over all circumstances of life. He has come into this world out of his tremendous love for us, and he has defeated our greatest enemy, which is death. Therefore, if he has defeated our greatest enemy, he can most certainly defeat the lesser issues and problems in our life in a fallen world. And when we look at the wounds in his hands and his feet and the hole in his side, all our doubting of his love for us should disappear when we remember the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, the Father, out of his great love for us, freely gave his own dear son uh, his life for you, his life for me, right? And again, the cross reminds us of the peace that has been won, objective, subjective, by the shed blood of the dear Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, his victory again over sin and death. It's his wounds. It's his wounds that tells us the price has been paid. Satisfaction has been made in full. Justice and holiness have met in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who is condemned because of our sin, but the one who is raised up because of our what? Justification. It's the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all sin. And again, if Christ has taken care of our greatest enemy in time, which is death, and he has, by defeating death, if he has secured our eternal salvation because of a substitutionary death on the cross, and he has, if we're willing to receive that future blessing of, uh, of our presence with him forever and eternity, then we have to believe here while we are left in time, in the present, the one who's occur, uh, uh, secured our eternal blessings most certainly can take care of our temporal problems. Therefore, there is no reason for us to what? Doubt. Be anxious for nothing. Did I, did I say, I don't remember, did I say this? You only have two options in life. You either believe the word of God or you what? Struggle. I don't know. I said earlier, I think we tend to doubt and we take our focus off of Christ. We place it on our circumstances. And again, just like to our dear friend John the Baptist, Christ says here, look at me. Look at me. He said to Thomas, reach here your finger and, my, and see my hands and reach here your hand and put it into my side and be not unbelieving, but be believing. Now again, the abundant grace and compassion of Christ poured out upon Thomas by the Lord Jesus Christ is just tremendous. And that, and that love that, uh, and that compassion that's poured out by Christ to Thomas causes Thomas to spontaneously confess uh, one of the greatest uh, uh, confessions of the Lord Jesus Christ as Messiah, save maybe uh, only rivaled by Peter's confession in Matthew 16, 16. Thomas, reach here your hand, or reach here your finger and see my hands and reach here your hand and put it into my side. Be not unbelieving, but believing. Verse 28, Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. 
Christ in his kindness reveals himself to Thomas personally. And Christ's revelation to Thomas now uh, removes Thomas's doubt. Thomas is convinced of the historical reality that Jesus Christ really what? Defeated death. He's confident that Jesus Christ has defeated death because Jesus Christ is standing right before him. His doubt changes to faith. His doubt changes to solid belief. Church tradition tells us that Thomas, uh, later, he goes off to India, he proclaims the gospel, and the church history tells us that, uh, church tradition tells us Thomas is martyred there. I would suggest to you that Thomas would never have marched off into India someplace and would never have given his life for service for Christ if he was unsure uh, that Jesus literally physically rose from the dead. But he wasn't unsure. He was absolutely positive because he met him. Just like all the other disciples who initially don't believe, they, they, they have doubt, they, they fail to believe that Jesus has defeated death. And again, that doubt is done away with when they meet Jesus face to face. And he dramatically changes their life. And every one of them boldly proclaims the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead all the way into their, to, up to their martyrdom, with the exception of John who dies there on Patmos. We live in a fallen world. There's a lot of difficulties, a lot of problems. But our doubts are removed when we look at Christ, our wonderful Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and believe who he is and what he has done. Doubt is removed when we put our focus back upon him. When Thomas answered, or Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord, my God, I think it's entirely significant that Jesus said, no, 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 you got it all wrong, man. I'm just a good teacher. I'm just a good moral, moral guy from, from history. He didn't say that because that's not who he is. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God, and Jesus didn't correct him, but he received Thomas's affirmation of deity because that's exactly who Jesus Christ is. He's God coming to flesh. And it's interesting, I think at the end of the book of John, we're right back to where we were at the beginning of the book of John. It takes us right back to the beginning. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He said to Thomas, reach here your finger in my hands and Reach here your hand and put it into my side. Be not unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord, my God. So again, Thomas moves from being the last holdout, the last skeptic, the last great doubter, to a disciple that again is going to offer his life for the Savior, but he's going to make the highest profession of faith that someone can make in the person of Jesus Christ. And again, the profession by Thomas, of who Jesus Christ really is, my Lord, my God, that has to be embraced by all true believers because that's exactly who Jesus is. He is the Lord. And as the Lord, he demands your utmost obedience. As the Lord, he demands your utmost obedience and he demands that you surrender every area of your life to him always. Those who teach you can, quote, unquote, accept Jesus as your Savior and deny him as Lord. They teach something that is not found in the pages of the Scripture. No man makes Jesus Christ Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. He's not only the Lord, he's the only sovereign of the universe. He's God, right? My Lord and my God. I mean, all the false teachers, all the cults, they try to say Jesus never claimed to be God. He was only a great being, a great created being. Uh, the Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, etc. and so forth. All of those lies, all of those lies are dispelled right here. All, all thrown away. All the damnable uh, demonic error is thrown away right here. My Lord and my God. Jesus never rebuked him. 
He never objected because that's exactly who he is. Jesus received the testimony because it's true from Thomas, and he praises him for his faith. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord, my God, verse 29, Jesus said to him, Because you've seen me, you believe. I mean, it's wonderful that Thomas believed upon Christ because he saw him. His doubts were alleviated. But Jesus is going to remind Thomas that believers in the future are going to have an equally high effective revelation of the person of Christ. That, that they're going to have the written word, right? When Christ ascends into the, to the Father's presence, the, those who are left are going to have the written word, the, the apostles' word, the word of God. Uh, that faith in Christ is believed through what God says to be true about him in the pages of the New Testament. So again, the Lord looks ahead to the time when there's going to be that tangible, tangible physical evidence is removed as Thomas is presently witnessing. That will no longer be available, but the Word of God is always available. The Word of God is always available. The Word of God always stands true. For those who take it up and read it, you can know what the truth is. Jesus said to him, because you've seen me, have you believed? Jesus concludes with these words. He said, blessed are you, blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. And I think in the context, blessed doesn't mean just you're happy, but it means you have a acceptance before God. Because that's the whole point of the book, right? Again, when we no longer, like today, we no longer have the physical presence of Christ, but we have him inscripturated. Now on this side of the cross, we have a great measure of the person of the Holy Spirit that brings us to life, that allows us to see the Word of God concerning the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who he is found in his Word. That's why John concludes the end of the chapter here. It says, many other signs Jesus performed in the presence of the disciples that are not written in this book. Verse 31 that I've repeated probably a hundred times. These things have been written that you might what? Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you might have life in his name. The word of God gives testimony to the reality of the person of Jesus Christ. All right, Lord willing, we'll look at those verses next time. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we are marveling at your grace and your kindness to us. We're thankful for the truth that's found here in the pages of the scripture. We're thankful for uh, the fact that you want us to know you and you reveal yourself to us in the pages of the scripture. We don't have to be doubtful. We just have to believe what you say to be true. Place our faith and confidence in you and in you alone and all, all doubt is gone. Then we also have to be present to listen, to hit, hear the teaching of the word, to sit out of the preached word, to be a part of the fellowship, to encourage other brothers and sisters in Christ who at times, just like we all, enter into seasons of doubt. Help us to be an encouragement to them. Help us all to focus on you, our God, and Christ, our Savior. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.